Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In the world of Anne Marais, north of the city of Withren, wild horses run through the moorlands and up the coast. These horses are the city's most valuable export and as a result are hunted, trapped, sold, and shipped across the sea once a year. For those in Withren, this trade passage creates lucrative and exciting possibilities, the chance to escape their constantly sweltering city and escape to the western continent of Levithan, or simply to begin again. The film is called The Wanting Mare, it's an intimate, dramatic fantasy epic written and directed by renowned digital artist Nicholas Ash Bateman. We're fortunate to have him joining us today to talk about The Wanting Mare. Nicholas Ash Bateman, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for wanting to talk about it. Yes, well, thank you so much. Uh, as I said to you before we started the formal part of our interview, that a lot of attention has been focused on the technical side of this film. And it is remarkable. It is really, truly amazing. And there, that is, it deserves attention. And we will talk about that. But I want to talk about the story itself because I've watched it a couple of times. What I really like about it, I'm not sure about a lot of it. And I, that's mm -hmm. one of the things I love about film is this sort of the uncertainty, the, where, the places where you can fill in from your own experiences and try to piece together the meaning to it. There's a, there's a band called Seeger Rose and they create, songs that I call soundscapes. Mm -hmm. And this film feels like a filmscape. Oh, that's just the most wonderful thing to hear. That's, this was the hope. Yeah, certainly. Let me ask you, where did the story for this come from? So the earliest version of this in a direct way, you know, aside from my interest in trying to make a fantasy world and all that sort of stuff, but in terms of, I want to make a story and these are the particulars of that story. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's Wuthering Heights to me. Um, and Wuthering Heights sort of entered my life around 2011, somewhere around there. And that, that was that 2011, 2012 is when I started to sort of furiously write a bunch of stuff, all of which kind of coalesced into this over the years. But, you know, the generational uh, love affair, a place sort of sort of adopting the qualities of the people and the themes and um, names interchanging, and, you know, all these sort of wonderful, magical things that Emily Bronte did, which I still am just consumed by constantly was it's it was an attempt at me being like, oh, this is, you know, it, it was enough to keep me going every day of being like I chasing whatever that meant to me. So in a way you adopted not only the the kind of the story motif, but also mm. the visual motif in some ways, the, where it was the setting of it. Is that right? Fair? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, in, in creating this this place, it, it, it definitely adopted some of these like Northern English qualities, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot of the movie is a strange sort of assembly of like aesthetics and balancing things getting different parts to work. So in this like tradition of fantasy, it gets hard to start off outside of Britannia in a way. <laughs> so like there's there's something I think in the, in the lineage of that of, of 
the you know Yorkshire Moors where it's like oh this kind of works I can accept this as like a fantastical place even though there aren't yeah and that's funny because in the in the film if you were to turn off the sound and look at the setting of where it is it looks like a cold and foreboding place and yet in yes. reality of the film it's a sweltering heat Right. I, I just love, I just, these are the kind of thing, this is what puts me, this is what puts me in the mind of, and this is just me riffing off of, this also feels like a sort of post-apocalyptic climate change world that they're living in. Like they're living right. through this, this new reality of the world's weather systems have gone completely off the rails. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because the postmortem of the movie is began halfway through it, but certainly now it, that's the only process. <laughs> and, you know, you start to look at it and be like, where did this stuff come from? And I, and this idea of the movie appearing visually not hot, but being reputed to be very hot. <laughs> is something that, you know, has been around for a while. And honestly was, you know, when I would attempt to show the movie to people, they'd be like, this, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. You know, there's some stuff that you go through and you're like, right, that doesn't make sense. And there's other stuff emotionally. And this was one of the biggest ones emotionally where I was like, well, I'm aware of there is that contradiction, but I, for some reason, I, it, I don't know. It, it means something to me in a way that I, I don't know how to explain. Maybe it is the, again, that I'm trying to get the setting to come out of the themes yeah. And whereas it could be, you know, insanely hot, it also could be sort of a place of the mind, which is very, you know, temporal and with the wind. And it's, you know, I think that setting is more a result of um, time moving very quickly. Well, and the story is really one of, of about a family, a sort of a disjointed mm -hmm. family mm -hmm. and how those, the daughters, the mom, the boyfriend or the father, Comes, mm -hmm. in, comes in and out of the film your character mm -hmm. which is unnamed in the in the in the credits maybe yeah was, I, I, I've been doing my best to hide that I'm in the movie is what that means really <laughs> very <laughs> honestly because I'm just so self-conscious about not even really necessarily the performance but just like I don't really want to make movies about myself visually featuring myself. That's just too much. <laughs> you know I mean? well, so, it's like, uh, so I've been trying to. Well, if, if this is of any comfort to you then to say that the characters are fluid in this film and their yes. place in terms of a sort of, if you were to put together a timeline is also that. Mm -hmm. So it, it isn't, this certainly is not focused on your character. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even though he's a key element. So I'll just yeah. call you un, the unnamed element in the film. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I just, there's so much here um, that, uh, again, leaves you to wonder at the same time, it makes enough, there's enough coherence in the story to follow mm -hmm. what, what mm -hmm. is happening. Uh, but if you were to, yeah. You, but if you were doing the old Venn diagram of a of a sentence, it, it might not exactly work. Is the Venn diagram that we used to diagram sentences? I don't know if they still do that. Oh anymore. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure yeah. that this would work out as a great if you were to take a right, right. Diagram. Yeah, the the mechanics of the grammar are sort of sort of strange. Yeah, thank you. But so this was written over a period of time, put together, mm -hmm. you know, over 
How what what length of time are we talking about from the actual production of the film is just about five years. Okay. And then the, basically the six, seven, or wait, let me get this right. Yeah, six, about six, five or six years before that, maybe a little less, was this process of like writing things and being like, there is X movie that I'm going to make. And then that, as I get closer to 2016, 2017, which is when it really started to come together, 2016 is when we started shooting. <clears throat> As like we got closer to 2016, I, you know, it was very clearly like, this is the name of the movie. I'm trying to raise money for this movie. And that, while also still re- uh, obsessively writing and rewriting right. on it. So, Okay, let, let me let our audience know, let our listeners know that we're speaking with Nicholas Ash Bateman. And you were the director, producer, obviously you wrote it. You uh, were in charge of the special effects. You did a, yeah. you did a lot. Really as a group of just a handful of people. Right. So they're, they're, you know, everybody on the movie has like 30 titles, basically, <laughs> you know, right. uh, I don't know if there's really anyone that showed up and was like, I'm just, I just do this. I don't, you, know, you know, you started out, you had, I think, enough money to get uh, a few days of shooting in and then mm-hmm. sort of ran into that proverbial wall of we need more money if we're going to get any much further. It, it, so for people who, again, people who are listening yeah. were who are in the film making business or want to be, uh, this is also a story of perseverance for you, uh, for mm. you to go out and continue to not only have a, this idea of what you wanted to do, but also the determination to see it through. Uh, and was, was it 35,000 you raised at the very beginning? And then. Yeah. Exa- so we raised 20,000 on Indiegogo okay. and then I was able to privately have people sort of match that just cause they were like, okay. Um, and uh, that also only happened because I, I only at one point had one actual traditional offer from someone who made movies to be like, I will produce this movie. This is this seems exciting. But it was like a really sort of terrifying deal. Uh, you know, I would I would sell the whole thing. And then like it was an option for a year. And then he would basically hire me to direct the movie if he wished. Wow. Depending on depending on my casting choices, which my casting wow, choices that were had like, to be scary. It was scary. I mean, at first, I, obviously, this this information came out in pieces. So the first stage of it was like, we love this. I think you know, there's no version of this where we shouldn't make for less than like one or two million dollars, and you're going to direct it. You know, and I was living in a garage at the time, <laughs> you know? so I was like, this is amazing. This is incredible. And then, you know, you have to come to realize like, oh, you know, also that deal would have made very great sense, which many distributors and production companies now run on that sort of model. If I was making, you know, a bunch of very different things, it's basically someone saying, I'll give you all the free equity and, you know, marketing and control to make your first thing. However, I own all of the first thing and then you're going to have a career. Okay. So that that would have worked, but for me, I was like, "This is this is my whole life," <laughs> you know. So, however, I then had a very formal way to be able to show to you know people who own stores in New Jersey and friends, like, I'm not making this up. Someone who professionally produces movies thought this was maybe a good investment. So, because of that, I was able to raise the additional fifteen thousand dollars, and then so the plan was we would shoot the first thirty five minutes of the movie with that $35,000 and try to use that to raise the rest of the money to make the movie, which was sort of horrifying because, you know, you're using the smallest amount 
to get judged for the rest and you know the crew was like three or four people so it just was what, one of those things like, and oh what God, version of the of the what we see on screen of, in terms of the visual effects were you able to put into the film for that much so the visual that's that was the scariest part because at, even at that point i didn't even have the ability to finish the visual effects or do them really execute them on a level that would in any way be acceptable or good before I had even finished raising money to shoot the next piece, which basically was like, I had, I, I had enough to be able to edit together a trailer to show investors. Okay. And I like was sort of terrified that I would get caught and be like, I don't, I can't finish. This is going to take me a decade to finish, but. Wow. That's scary. And uh, <laughs> scary. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, whatever it was, however, whatever voodoo you do on terms of making, you know, giving people the sense that you really know what you're going to do, or you have a background in this mm -hmm. VFX mm -hmm. in terms of creating visual um, special effects, and you've been at it for a little while, so there was probably, I'm sure, built into this an expectation you could pull this off if you were given the resources. Right. Yeah. That was, that was, that was the, the business pitch basically, which is that somebody my hope was at some point, someone's going to make a movie that looks like it was spent, you had spent millions of dollars on it and they're going to be able to make it like in their bedroom with a couple of people. It's going to happen in the next like five years. That's what I just kept saying. That was like a Humpty Dumpty. I was like, someone's going to do yeah. it. That was, I think, Peter Jackson was saying something along those lines when yes. right around the time of Lord of the Rings. And, right. And he was right. He and was you, right. And, <laughs> and so I was like, you know, I think I got a, I think I got a pretty good shot at it, basically, was my pitch. And uh, so that was the whole thing, you know. And then so that made sense to, you know, young small business owners. They were like, okay, this makes sense. And then I showed them the small amount of stuff that I had done and been trying to teach myself how to do. And. Um, none of it was anywhere near what it needed to be to actually do the thing that I was selling. But well, first of all, it's so impressive. It's just really a great look. I have this weird question I want to ask you. How much of an effect had, had did uh, the production of Sky Captain World of Tomorrow have on people who wanted to make films like this? I do. And it was one of those things where when we were making the movie, I kept pulling it up and being like, I got I to gotta watch this. And I don't honestly know if I've ever seen the whole thing. Right. How, however, the idea of it is certainly ingrained in my in my mind. I mean, the thing that is, you know, the, the, the inciting incident to all of these ideas and dreams are the long lord of the rings special features yeah. where it's just like 20 hours of these people being like this is amazing the other part of honestly was gareth edwards because gareth edwards had made that movie monsters in like 2000 basically if you look at it it's like i think it's somewhere around exactly when i'm like 2012 or something and adobe sponsored a series which is you know the software sponsored a series of him literally like in his room they like did they sent a camera team to like his bedroom and he was like, yeah, here's how I made this movie. And he like is going through his computer. And I watched that not knowing how to use those programs and being like, this is, you know, this is the path, basically, which is funny because now I'm, you know, people come over to my bedroom and I'm like, this is how I make this movie. <laughs> so um, oh, that's awesome. You know, this again, I'm pulling out these weird, obscure references. I don't think Sky Captain is so weird and obscure. But there is a film that goes back to a time when Macs were just starting to be used in, in the production of films, mm -hmm. a film called Tarnation. Have you ever heard of it? Or I have heard? not. No. It was made by a guy named John uh, Jonathan Kuk 
Coquette, and I, I th- I'm butchering his name, and he made it, he claimed he made it for $5. Basically, it's, <laughs> it, it, it was a film about his mother, and he had just assembled a whole bunch of footage and had interviewed her, put it together, mm-hmm. and it was a, a documentary about his mom, who was yeah. something from a form of mental illness. She was obviously in some kind of a decline in that regard. And it was a sensation It won a bunch of awards at Sundance. And it, and he his, literally his claim was he made it for like, you know, he said $2.98 or some $2.98 mm-hmm. because he had to buy something for his computer. Right. And, and from, from that point forward, that was the first film that I'm aware of where people went, you mean you can make a movie on a computer now? And then yeah. wham. Anyway, just there's there's been this evolution of this idea that putting sort of democratization of filmmaking. Yes. Great. Your film, The Wanting Mare, is such a great example. But nonetheless, it's it is within the the realm of possible now. Mm -hmm. And I I kept I mean, the thing that we kept saying, which I, I do feel like is the important aspect of it, is that, you know, we're not using visual effects to put something there that otherwise doesn't exist. I'm using visual effects to put stuff in scenes that is very easily filmable. You right. know, like there, it's like grass and like, here's a driveway, which we made in the computer. Like these are strange ways to use it. And the hope was if you look at visual effects, not as just like some sort of, I don't know, but like budget padding or being like, this is something we couldn't do. So we're going to do this, or this is a thing that doesn't exist. So we have to put a robot in here. And just use it as like a painting tool. Right. That's basically what what the what it became. At a certain point, when we cross this boundary of like this is absurd, how much visual effects we're doing here, then instead of being like, well, we need to do stuff practically, and we're trying to do stuff practically, we sort of just ex- like we're like, this is painting. We're making a big painting, and this is making the movie better. You know, this is the movie that we want to make. I think that's such an important distinction. This, this, the effects that we see in this film are done in service to the story, in service to the characters, in service to a mm-hmm. setting that brings out aspects of their lives that are important. I think right. that's really an important distinction. You yeah. can make Sky Captain World of Tomorrow be- <laughs> for the for the for the robots and the special effects. You made it in a- in order to be able to make these characters and their stories better better visually mm-hmm. and better to understand the world the the world this world that they live in this new world mm-hmm. so yes. yeah i really think that thank you for that because i think that's sure true. yeah well the reaction to the film has mm. been pretty darn amazing <laughs> yes yeah that's yeah yeah the more surreal aspects of the, all of the fantasy involved with the movie that is the, you know i keep saying that 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 it's hard to express how rare the excitement was for quite some time. Now I can say it because obviously the movie's out. <laughs> like, you know, the, the, this movie basically was like rejected from like literally every film festival I submitted to twice, like two years in a row. It's been really? rejected from like 200 film festivals, like small film festivals, big film festivals. Did they say too weird? There's, I can't imagine. What I mean, why? there's a there's a range of responses. Some of the responses were very like, "This is great," but we, you know, we don't. This is a very challenging year. We don't have room for it. And other responses like bordered on the like, uh, if we had someone try to send it to someone else, like there there are emails that I still have of people that were forwarded to me being like, "I don't like this. I don't know anyone that would like this. I don't know what this movie is. Like, stop sending me. I step. You know what I mean? Like, like a- actively malicious. Like." like this is doesn't make any sense like it, it's like willfully ignorant to whatever the is going on in the world um 
So you sound uh, you're beginning to sound like you were that you're a stalker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like stop trying to get people to watch this stupid movie. Leave us alone about it. We're gonna get um, a restraining order if you said. Yeah, that. yeah, because I just kept being like, I don't know. But the other thing is, like, the movie kept changing, the edit kept changing, and the visual effects, like, it was none of the visual effects were like, we finished the shot, let's move on. You know what I mean? Like, it was like a whole movie was constantly like moving in a direction. So, the thing was structurally, edit wise, visually was like constantly in flux, which also made people's reactions to be like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Like this, like this movie's trying to. Is this an art film? Is this what, like, what are you doing here? And I think until everything was like done and dried, could someone look at it and be like, I think this is what's happening here. And then other people are like, yes, this is an exciting thing. But for a while it was either like unwatchably insane or like you've made up like a Harry Potter fan film that like, I don't understand why you're submitting this to X prestigious film festival <laughs> well well when when you're making you know trillion dollar movies you can crush them under your <laughs> yeah 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 no i mean i still would like to, i've never seen the movie on a theater in a theater so oh, you know, that's i'm hoping to at some true. point be like i wouldn't play it but uh, but that is the, the, i mean that's that's the hardest part of the well, for filmmakers, that's yeah. there's uh, there's a lesson here, right? Yeah. yeah if yeah. you you know believe in something strongly, you really are are all in on it, and um, yeah. Well, it's it's got to feel good then to read these reviews and to have people tell you, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if if we had if someone like at the beginning of this process was like, here's how long it's going to take, and here's all the nice things people are going to say about you at the end, like. Of course I would do that. Who like wouldn't do that? They'd be like, this is great. But like, you know, that like the, the stuff that we were hearing through the process was like, stop doing this. This is terrible. So you know, um, largely, you know, and obviously some people were like, this is really cool. Whatever it is, I don't know. Keep doing it. Um, so so are, yes, are you, no, I'm yeah. well, congrats. I'm good. Congrats on having gone through this crucible that you went <laughs> yeah. and to come out on the other side of it and to feel, I mean, uh, are you, obviously you've got to be encouraged and are you feeling like I've read in sort of the background material on this, that you envision this as part of a ongoing story, more to be told, or is this, is yes. this, okay. In a way, I mean, in way. not in you know, the characters in The Wanting Mare, I don't think we'll see again. And with Rin, this, you know, the city, we will, if I get to keep making stuff, we will see again, but it would be at a very different time and, you know, very, very different setups. However, I think it would, my hope is it would at some point be like, oh, wow, this all, all this stuff, however X amount of more things I get to make, if I get to come back in, I would get to sort of plug some beginning stuff into the Wanting Mirror that would be very fun to kind of watch it all the way around. But all the other stuff is um, happening more in, what's the word, in like a, a bit of a more traditional, rigorous, like world building sense, which is that, you know, the events, histories, the setups, the different states and countries and everything all have consequential sort of history between them and places and accents and, you know, these sort of things that line up. Whereas the wanting mayor, I am constantly saying it feels sort of purgatorial <clears throat> in a way that it isn't necessarily connected to anything else. So I've taken that feeling and almost accounted for it on a world map, <clears throat> excuse me, 
and been like, I'm going to put Withrin way over here right. and we're going to get to it at some point. But the well, rest of the stuff is in other places. Yeah, it feels like the Outlands. It feels like the penal colony, the Australia yeah. of the world that you're building, right? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, absolutely. I could very much see an evolution or Withrin. Yeah. But what's yeah. It, why is everybody trying to get there? And is it what, since no one apparently comes back except the people on the ship, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of possibilities, right? People are right. coming back. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think the movie maybe thematically is also what the movie is talking about, but I am like a strange mix of like an intense pessimist and someone who is highly um, superstitious. You know what I mean? So it's like I am constantly unable to resolve my being like, well, maybe this is all it's just a wonderful, fantastic world full of ghosts. And then also being like, maybe there's absolutely no meaning or order to any of this. So and I think that is the probably the, the thesis statement of the wanting mirror, which is pro would probably be the question that I'm kind of chipping at if I get to keep making stuff in different ways, which is that. You could look at this one of two, you could look at the same thing and have two reactions, which is that, you know, Leviton is this wonderful place of cold and winter and absolving, you know, <laughs> climate, <laughs> or it's another place. And these right. people are projecting their, you know, right. things on I'm it. I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier. I was referring to the other world as with Ren. I didn't, yes. Oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah to your to your point, to, to your point. Absolutely, it could be anything. And that's the beauty yeah. of this film. It, it sets you up for, your expectations for could be going anywhere moving, right. moving. well well my congratulations and uh, yeah yeah and um you want to talk about horses though right i did i did want to talk about horses <laughs> well i did i just such a great motif back and kind of looked up all the different very serious mythology around horses right there's mm -hmm. just so there and it's all over the place because horses have they've evolved with human beings without horses I don't know that we would be where we are today as right. a human race, right? Yeah. And I have to believe that's part of the thinking that went into what you were creating with this world was mm -hmm. horses are an integral part, whether we're in this post-climate apocalypse or not, horses will be an integral part of our life. Totally. Yeah. They're, they're there at the beginning and the end, certainly, if, yeah. if there is one. And yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I, this this strain this horse question obviously I'm like pretty obsessed with so I was like I, no one's asking this I want to talk about horses you know he, my 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 real patron saint as with many people is Carl Jung oh and he and he has this thing about horses which I didn't discover until I had already been writing it for a long period of time. And uh, my production center, Cassandra Baker, was like, have you read this? And he sent, and she sent me this whole thing about Carl Jung. And Carl Jung was talking about how the horse, above all things, the horse symbolizes in our, in our unconscious the idea of deep time in the past. And I was like, you know, I read this being like, my God. Um, but it is like there are things, and this is my sort of creative hope, there are things in the movie that I'm, you know, because the movie is like intensely sort of pruned in a way, you know, being like, I'm going to take this way, take this way, take this way, and what's left, and what does this still keep us, you know, what does this do to your mind watching it and suggest? And like, even the title and the idea of 
Like I don't, I have no idea how on like an etymological level, the word for nightmare is intertwined with the word for a female horse is intertwined with the idea of the sea. I have no idea why those three words are lined up in there. Well, Carl, uh, Carl Jung explained it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and uh, so, I mean, you can read the, you can read the title basically four different ways and you could probably translate it to a couple different languages and it would keep the same sense of meaning of where these words come from and what they're related to. It looks like a strange triple entendre. Um, and I think that that speaks to this idea of that I just am so consumed by, uh, you know, the, of the collective unconscious and, you know, this, all of these things in our mind and that are remnants of these other places. Um, and that is that to me, that is the past, both on like an emotional level or a genetic level, but also culturally. You know, and I think that becomes like actual mysticism to me and a very real sort of like a tangible religious almost experience that like we each contain. By no means am I an expert on Carl Jung, but I remember. Me neither also. Yeah. <laughs> I re remember reading him in college. Uh, I, I have, I still have the paper book, paperback book over there. And I, the one thing that stuck with me was this idea of this hum humanity having a collective subconscious, the idea that we all on some mm -hmm. level share this commonality of, of experience that could only come to us through this kind of cellular level of right. like the very, and the one one thing in in the reading of that book was it's just jumped out at me is humans are the only species that bury their dead. Now I think we I think they've discovered that there may be some other animals that do some mm. version of that, but mm -hmm. the idea that we all came to the same version of marking death mm -hmm. as a passage to something else, burying our dead is one version of that. Pu you know, pushing a boat out to sea, putting them on a ice floe, you know, whatever it is, yeah. we all as human beings mark passage of death mm -hmm. to something to something else, whether it de decomposition or another plane of existence or whatever it might be. But we all understand that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's just, I mean, yeah, th I, this is the stuff where, where, that's like where my brain is most of the day, <laughs> you know, I mean, like that. I don't, um, I find a hard, I find it hard thinking about really anything else, which is hopefully there's like a humanizing aspect to it. Um, have you ever gotten into Terrence McKinnon? I have not. And it's on, it's, it's one of these things that pops up, you know, in my other. Little the idea of how we got a consciousness at all might have to do with the fact that as the, early humans were chasing the uh you know their, their their prey across the savannah of africa that embedded in the the poop were these mushrooms that grew up and that they and they were eating the mushrooms what? yes oh this is part of God, this, this part. and so when when they they ate and occasionally they died from these mushrooms i'm sure but sometimes they provided them with a psychedelic type of an experience and therefore it raised their idea that whatever they didn't know Sort of, I mean, the sort of the idea of a, a, a an, an experience, an out of body experience for these early humans would have been a jarring experience. Would have been something that they would have never otherwise come really? across. Now, I am simplifying this, oversimplifying this in yeah. an obscene way, but this idea, whether or not it was eating magic mushrooms or something, created a 
an experience in humans, early humans, that where they realized that there was something beyond themselves, beyond eating and trying to survive. Mm. Hence the cave drawings, hence, you know, trying to piece together the story of their own existence by scratching on the side of a, of a cave wall, what they experienced. There was something that triggered this part of our, of our humanity that triggered us to start thinking the moon, the stars, us, we're not alone, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. Terrence McKenna is a big advocate and people will some dispute whether or not he was, he's a nut, you know, well, yeah. this is not, you know, feasible, but increasingly more and more people are coming to this idea that something jarred humanity at its earliest into an experience out of body experience that caused right. them to think about something beyond just simply trying to survive. Right. And yeah. So that's just give you some food for thought. Well, that's, I mean, it, it's interesting because like this idea of the, you know, the arrival of consciousness. I also, I, I went to uh, seven years of Jesuit school growing up. Cool, so I, <laughs> so I, yeah. I, uh, and I was raised um, basically Irish Catholic and I, I, you know, are were you as well? Oh my God. My okay. dad was going to be a priest. He wanted my it's his biggest disappointment in life that I never became an altar boy. Oh my God. Just don't get. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So I, I mean, love Jesuits, I, by the way, of all the, I, all the Catholic orders, they're the one that I like. Yeah. Right. I tell you what, I feel the same way. And it, it also was like, they sort of allowed my, you know, part of, I think my like imagination is also, you know, found formed by my like venturing into the secular <laughs> you know, be like, maybe this is all a metaphor. And like, what well, that is a terrifying thought. What does that mean if this all becomes a metaphor? And then, you know, obviously, I, there are gradations of Jesuits who are like, don't say that, or like, you know, me like raising my hand, be like, what if it's all a metaphor? And they're like, it could be, you know, and then yeah. so that stuff is interesting. And then, however, you know, I, I don't know, I just am, am so interested by having a very now I look at it uh, as like a, a very specific cultural experience of belief which uh, you know I, I value no more or less really than all of the other ones and my interest is being like well how did this person grow up and how did this person go up and and I'm you know the question of if theism or like if there is a god or there is a god I I have really almost no interest in me too I'm sitting with you I'm right with yeah, you. yeah and I and I get very terrified when people are interested in solving the question <laughs> i get very scared of answers yeah. and i i become very moved by the idea i think if i have a, a religious belief it's probably close to like a carl sagan thing of you know we're all here we're working it out together I, I i like that but you know this idea where do we come from and where do we go and and this unknown past and birth and all of these things that i get you know that's certainly the collective unconscious but there's a there's a painter named Ansem Kiefer. Have you ever heard of him? I've heard the name. Oh, he's just he's just he's a real poet, you know. And he and he he grew up in Germany, um, and his father, I believe, was part of you know like the the Nazi Party. I could be very wrong, but I believe this is the case. And in the '60s, I think, in, in Germany, as it might still be, I don't know. At the time, it was like illegal to have any sort of Nazi paraphernalia or, or replicate any of that or anything at all. And Kiefer basically was like, well, this seems a dangerous prospect for a <laughs> culture to basically expunge a period of time and be like, we can't remember this. And so he, I think he became famous by replicating, like wearing his father's uniform and taking these photos and sort of, and then 
somehow over his life that has translated into or, or transposed into him looking at the giant scale of our time and right. being like what have we forgotten and you right. know how right. do we go back and how do we go back to the beginning is this thing he keeps saying all the time and uh, he does that with his paintings he paints over them layer of layer of layer for years and then puts them outside and lets them age and grow algae and moss and then he'll bring them back in and you know he does all this sort of stuff and it's just this idea of uh you know quantifying time but the the hope is to be able to say like we don't know how any of this works and we're here together you yeah. know yeah and it's just what a wonderful thought to me my latest obsession is what i love to do it won't probably ever happen but i would love to do something called project acknowledgement hmm. because to me so many of the things that we are sort of vexed over or we fight over or whatever is is based some often on a refusal to acknowledge something right or, or it's yeah. sort of it's become a way for us like in this country <clears throat> the refusal to acknowledge that in in the early 1600s human beings were were shipped from all parts of the world to come here to work right. To work in our fields and that they had no rights and they we we don't even acknowledge it yeah. okay it's unbelievable it is unbelievable and yet here we are 400 years later dealing with the ramifications of that we don't if, if we as a society knew that that happened if if our if you asked a third grader that in 1619 this happened mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, absolutely. That's, well, they were bringing them over from, you know, where, from Africa and from wherever. And this is how, we would be a completely different country, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But our refusal to even acknowledge it will continue to make our lives a living hell for as long as we're here. Constantly. I, I'm also like my, you know, I keep saying my ideal tattoo is just a film by Ken Burns. Because I love Ken Burns, <laughs> you know, it's like just that's the tattoo. It's just a film by Ken Burns, and uh, I watched his series, The Civil War. Like I watch it like yearly. I'm just, yeah. I'm just like I think he's the greatest, and it is, you know, it is one of those things, especially with that 1600s and Civil War. It's like if you were an alien and you landed here and you were like, "What's going on in this landmass?" In two sentences, you would describe something that we're like wandering around being like. I don't know, that was maybe not that long ago, or is, was it too long ago, or how does this affect us? It's like, we're so clearly affected by, especially in America, like our recent past, that we can't even open our mind to it, you know? Right. And it, and uh, I don't know, I mean, again, this is like, then I apply these sort of things to my cultural upbringing and other people's, and then I'm like, oh, this is a sense of original sin, which is like being, <laughs> you know, being a, a, uh, again like refuted and then everybody else has these sort of things and the power of affirming the past is yes, is just so exactly uh, there are three wars that we haven't resolved okay we in the united states haven't resolved the civil war we're still fighting the civil war yes i mean literally three weeks ago we were fighting the civil <laughs> yes, war yes. three weeks ago uh the first world war and the ramifications of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the Middle East and Europe and the rise of fascism, we're still fighting that war. We're still fighting World War I. And the other one is the Cold War. And the Cold hmm. War is kind of an outgrowth of the First World War. But nonetheless, we're still fighting those three wars. And they are having an immense impact on our, our world in America because of the Civil War, but also 
the world in general was we are we we've we're and we refuse to acknowledge that those wars were never never resolved and generally speaking wars are never resolved but to varying degrees of the impact that they have on the rest of the world and that's what i'm talking about world war one is still dramatically impacting the world we live in and um and i just think the civil war i, I we're still fighting the civil war yeah it's like an inconceivable it's one of those things where if you walk somebody because i'm constantly like you know i grew up in maryland i'd go visit gettysburg and i like was obsessed with gettysburg when i was a kid and a lot of that stuff is around you know on the east coast in a strange sort of ghostly way yeah um but also in a way that it, much goes much like us like it's sort of not talked about and That's now right. kind of moving around the country I've, I've been like this is a strange place you know <laughs> Yeah, that's why. Yeah, that's why. See, just acknowledge it. Yeah, we we have to. We just got to agree on something. But let's establish the fact that human beings were brought here to be enslaved, to work for for nothing, and to be whatever. Just acknowledge that part. Acknowledge the fact that we killed a bunch of Native Americans. Let's just acknowledge it. Yeah, it's just. I mean, and in you know, it makes me sometimes think of this thing that again, Jung talks about of this idea of like the incomplete mind, yeah. which is that half of our mind we're just sort of disavowing. And he's talking about it in the realm of dreams that we're, we're saying that dreams are fiction and therefore we're just throwing them out. And if we're throwing out half of our conscious mind, how can we ever be whole? And it's creating these people who walk around constantly dissatisfied and constantly unfulfilled and deeply pained and they have no idea that they're cutting half of their their mind out and and he talks about that historically as well and it certainly is that problem is only made worse if you're if you're denying history and denying the past in a way and well and this, to the and to your to your point acknowledge that the mind the subconscious mind has has real currency in our mm-hmm. in the world that we say is the real world right mm-hmm. it has real currency I think he would argue the fullest point, which is that they are they are even, you know. Okay. And, uh, what a well, guy. Listen, I have just used up so much <laughs> of your morning here. Oh no, I t- I mean, this is <laughs> the best uh, the best externalizing of what my morning would otherwise be that I possibly could have. <laughs> I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Nicholas Ash Bateman. Thank you so very much for being here on Film School Radio. Yes, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.